Have you ever thought about the concept of telehealth? You know, health and wellness, particularly health in the mental space, is something that is really starting to take a hold in the lives of so many people. And in previously, that was done in an office. But because of the very quick changing times we're living in, it's starting to be delivered in secure digital spaces. The march of digital progression is happening. And my guest today is Jessica Moran, who is helping to lead the way in telehealth and has some interesting research related to the differences between telehealth and normal office settings for therapy. I think you're really going to enjoy listening to the conversation that I had with Jessica Moran. All right, Miss Jessica, thank you for being on. Um, and since you've listened to my podcast before, you know, I just jump right in. There isn't a whole bunch of other stuff happening. We just roll into it. So thank you for being on. And one, I would love to hear about the topic of telehealth. And also, I think you have a background in family and marriage counseling. So I got to hear about that, too. Oh, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me this morning. I think our conversation on telehealth is hitting at a a really important and interesting time. I think it would even have been extremely beneficial maybe two months ago to get this information out. But I think it's kind of ever evolving right now with everything that's going on with the COVID-19 pandemic and a lot of services overall switching to telehealth. So I think it's a great thing that we're talking about this morning. Well, let's go backwards a little bit, because I think it's good to discuss where things have been, where they are, and where they might be going. So what what were the impressions of telehealth way before COVID-19? Well, let's see. If we're, we're talking way before, we can kind of talk about the, the general kind of progression of what telehealth has been. Mm-hmm. And gosh, when I started my career in mental health, my very first case of telehealth was for an adolescent with agoraphobia. I specialize in anxiety. So agoraphobia, for anyone who's not familiar with it, is an extreme level of anxiety, so much so that they are unable to leave their house, have what we would kind of view as typical social interactions. So telehealth was a fantastic platform for this individual. And when we're looking you know, back 10 years on the evolution of telehealth, there really wasn't a whole lot of good standards. There weren't a lot of good platforms. I remember using a messaging and kind of email system to first start off communications with this client. And we've seen so much evolve over the the 10 years since this first telehealth interaction that I've even had. And if we're going to kind of fast forward at this point to maybe a year ago, before the pandemic and before really our lives kind of shifted overall, we have a handful of really amazing platforms that kind of agencies and private practices were utilizing. And the reason why we use these platforms are because they're, of course, HIPAA compliant. They do not, they do not kind of store any of your private information. They don't sell any of your information. We can really view it as a traditional in-office counseling session, nothing's recorded, nothing particular going on there, but we're just doing it online. So that's kind of where our field was at probably a year ago. Not a whole lot of emphasis on telehealth. A lot of therapists were still hesitant to it, not really utilizing it to its full extreme. And then about a year ago, we started seeing some of these 
really big companies that are actually pretty big names right now starting to pop up. And those are like our BetterHelp, our Talkspace, our Seven Cup, all of those kind of companies that really saw this huge area for telehealth and just ran with it. And what those kind of companies are is they work with fully licensed therapists and they just connect the clients to these therapists. And on that initial level, they're fantastic. But if we want to, we can get into a little bit more of kind of some of the pros and cons of some of these companies. But that's where- Oh, it, definitely. Yeah, we really saw this big boom of telehealth being used. And it really became a household idea of, hey, I can talk to my therapist where it's most comfortable for me. If I'm having a panic attack in my car, I could reach out to my therapist right then and there for a session. If I'm feeling extremely low and really depressed and I don't feel like I can get out of bed today, I can roll over still being in bed and have a session with my therapist that's actually going to get me up, get me going and help me reach my goals. So it became this really, really great kind of concept that we started to embrace. And we started to see a lot of shifts of therapists actually utilizing telehealth a lot more. And then, of course, COVID-19 happened. And most states put the stay-at-home order in place, although a lot of mental health professionals are still kind of seen as those essential workers, and they had the option of going into their office and seeing clients as normal, and there was a large percent of therapists that did, what I've really kind of seen is the vast majority of therapists have decided to fully utilize telehealth, and that means taking their entire practice out of their brick-and-mortar location and only using telehealth for their clients so that they could, again, limit the exposure of any sort of COVID-19 interactions between clients and clients inter interacting in the lobby, you know, sharing any sort of common space, and we've really seen a huge shift. And what I've really seen and kind of the pulse of the therapeutic community is the vast majority of therapists are loving it. And so I think we're going to have a major shift coming out of the pandemic is that there will be more therapists that actually don't return to their offices. There's a large population of therapists that are saying, you know what, this is amazing. I can meet the needs of my clients where they have them, when they have them, in a space that's more comfortable for them. If we're saying we're going to do a lunch hour session, it truly becomes a lunch hour session. We don't have to explain to a boss or a coworker why we need to leave the office, why we need an extended lunch, because of course, even if a therapy session is 50 minutes, we still need that drive time there. We still need the drive time back we're really embracing, you know, a true lunch hour session. So there's a lot of therapists that have just said, you know, this is fantastic and we want to continue with this because it's more flexibility for our clients, which of course is what we're always looking for. But there is a, a population of therapists that are saying this is awful and we hate it and we miss the one-to-one -one human connection with our clients and they feel that they're missing some of the the good assessment pieces, some of those things that our therapists are doing in the background of our session that is not just the conversation we're having. So those assessments of just your overall functioning, how you're presenting in session, your affect, your dress, some of those things, there's a, a large group of therapists that says, I, I can't effectively do that assessment without the person here in the room. And then, of course, we have that huge drain of sitting at a computer doing telehealth for extended periods of time, and that can be very draining in itself. So I think we're going to have a very interesting result following 
the lift of all the stay-at-home orders and when our life shifts away from kind of what we've been seeing now with the pandemic is that we're going to have a lot more options for telehealth. It's very interesting how there's there's a lot of of things happening like that where we're starting to see some professions move in that direction. Absolutely. Where they're saying, hey, you know, really the necessity of it has caused people to be into it on some level. Mm-hmm. Where they may have never even considered it because they had to do it, it has become. It's like, oh wow, this this may be a thing, and I think it's crossing over many, many different uh, types of work environments for that. Oh, absolutely. Um, but I wanted to jump uh, back into, like you said, talk about the companies um, that fascinated me because I'm, I'm familiar a little bit with you know, obviously all the commercials with like Talkspace. There's so many commercials for Talkspace. I swear. Tell me about these companies and kind of the pros and cons of what's going on with that. Yeah, absolutely. So with any type of mental health that you're looking at, there's always going to be pros and cons to it. And this is talking from, you know, big mental health agencies to private practices to companies like BetterHelp and Talkspace. There's always going to be pros and cons. So I want everyone that may be listening to really take that into consideration to be a good consumer of the research and not just take it as kind of my word is the end all be all of this conversation, but there are some amazing benefits to it. And one of the amazing benefits is that you're going to be linked to a licensed mental health professional very, very easily. So for anyone that has ever tried to find their own therapist, tried to get a good fit with their therapist, because having a good fit with therapists is so important. It's going to be so vital to the therapeutic process you're going to engage in. But getting that process started can be so hard. And there's a lot of hoops that we have to jump through. If you are going through directories or through insurance companies, that may mean that you're having to call therapists, leave voicemails, email them. Sometimes therapists are really good with calling back. Sometimes we never hear back from them, right? So that can be a really draining process, especially if you're already experiencing a mental health challenge. So imagine someone that is severely depressed now trying to get linked with a therapist and nobody's calling them back. That's really daunting. It's really overwhelming. So one of the things that these companies are great at is they will immediately link you to the therapist that you need and you get to choose the therapist and everything is right there at your fingertips and it really will move as quickly as you want it to. So if you want to be talking to someone in the next hour, you will have a session in the next hour. So it's really fantastic on that component. It's also great because you're getting really experienced therapists and they have a a plethora of knowledge and they really are at your fingertips. So if you want to text message your therapist and that's the mode of communication you prefer to have, you have that option. If you only want to email, you have that option. If you want to do a true video session, you can do that as well. So it really is the type of therapy that you want it to be. And I think that's a very fantastic component because I think there's a lot of um, younger individuals that are kind of shying away from that traditional therapy because it's not comfortable to them because they don't want to go in an office and wait and then meet with their set, their therapist for their session. They don't want to have to go through this entire process of finding a therapist. It's so much easier for them to do what already comes natural, which is be on the internet, be doing a video call, texting their therapist. So it meets all of those needs and you're still getting really high quality therapy. 
You know, I wonder, is there any research going on related to, well, maybe there will be, to differences between um, the efficacy of, of the two different services, you know, and the effectiveness? I'd be interested yeah. because there's always like kind of this thing about uh, different generations, especially millennial or Generation Z and the amount of time on the internet mm-hmm. and sometimes the negative connotations to that and then moving everything in life to um, online services type of thing. Do you think there's going to be more related to that or research? Yes. In that? So our, our wonderful uh, research psychologists have actually been hitting this area really hard for the last couple of years. Mm. And a lot of the research that I have been reading is really focused on that that video call. So the in the moment video with audio attached to it sessions compared to in office sessions. And one of the things that has been popping up research study after research study is that there's actually no difference. That the gains, the amount of time to reach goals, the amount of work being done, the different modalities of therapy, that there is no difference. Mm. So I think that's a really, really important piece for a lot of people out there that are thinking, okay, well, I want to get the best therapy and I want it to work, is that if they're kind of toying with that idea of, do I do in-office or telehealth? If they're looking at doing video telehealth, there is no difference in the effectiveness of it. Now, I haven't been able to read a whole lot of studies on kind of the messaging aspect. So if you're doing just text messaging or just emailing, just because every now and then we can have some aspects lost in translation. So I haven't seen a whole lot of studies coming out from that end, but I know they're coming. They have to be. It's interesting. This is kind of running parallel to what I do. You know, I started a live virtual personal training service several years ago after training in person for almost 17 years. I still like doing it, but um, it's full time for me, live, virtual, real time. Um, And I have found, honestly, I kind of like it better doing it the way I'm doing it now, Mm -hmm. Um, just because the flexibility on both sides of the equation for myself and for the clients has dramatically changed all of our lives for the better. And the drive time, the convenience, all those things uh, have been huge game changers uh, for lifestyle. So I see that kind of happening in different realms and different things. You know, people ask me, do you miss training people in person? I'm like, "Mm, not really. (laughs) I mean, like, I feel like I'm accomplishing the same thing uh, in this live virtual format. Sure, there's some things that we're not doing maybe in person, but honestly, it feels very similar. There's no research on it, but it feels extremely similar as to what I was doing with it. So I find that fascinating that therapists are seeing, seeing the positive nature of it, many people, but that the research says so far, there's no difference. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And again, there's, they're kind of studying our more typical group, which is going to be adults, yes. because again, most people don't want to sign their kiddos up for a science experiment, mm-hmm. be honest. Yeah. But, and I know, and this is something that I actually have on my website because I do telehealth in a lot of different states is that I do a lot of play-based therapy when I'm working with kids. Mm-hmm. I do not take on play-based clients for telehealth. And I know that sounds a little bit different, but I feel like in that setting with the approach I use with kids, I lose too much. Mm. 
So we haven't seen that big bulk of research really coming out of how does play therapy work online? How do we utilize, you know, therapy for a five-year-old? And I know it's, it's different and it can absolutely be done. And there's a lot of therapists that do it really, really well. That is not one of the areas I feel I do well. I just feel like I lose too much in it. So whenever I work with a kiddo, I do have them still in office. And if I have any middle school, high schoolers, I actually have to assess whether they're going to work well for telehealth because it can be that very natural draw of, well, I'm actually just going to quickly quick click onto a different window. I'm going to check my TikTok real quick, or I'm going to look at my Snapchat on my phone some of those younger groups have that that challenge with some of that delayed gratification, really staying focused in the session. So even as you're doing telehealth, you have to really have that self-awareness of can I be fully focused in my session? And is my therapist going to really kind of point it out if they feel like I'm not focused? Because if we have somebody that's not focused, that doesn't matter if we are doing telehealth or if we're in office. If you're not focused, you're not focused. But it's a lot easier to become distracted when we're not in the office. Yeah. You know, what's interesting. I think I was, I was thinking about this kind of leading up to this, just, I think about kind of the difference between doing things like virtual live virtually versus in person. And in your profession, is there any difference in terms of the pricing for the service uh, in person versus virtually? So most agencies and private practices, there is not. And that just comes from that research of, hey, there's no difference. If you're getting the same benefits, if you're actually benefiting more from a more flexible schedule, most places have the exact same price per service. But that actually comes back and kind of loops around of some of the drawbacks of some of those bigger companies that we were just talking about. So if I may, that's actually one of their drawbacks. And I I know that sounds very unique to say it that way. But when we look at some of these bigger companies, they often roll out these big packages and they're really, really beneficial to clients because they offer kind of a a more quantity versus quality when they're looking Mm. at their packages. So their goal is to sell the most packages as possible, get the most clients on board, get the most clients doing services to make their money. They're not saying, okay, I need that, that really nice, you know, here's my price point. I need to make this price point. And then I just need a few clients where I'm going to provide that really, really in-depth quality of care. This is a huge company we're talking about. They have thousands of therapists. They get to do the volumes, but with one of the drawbacks that we've really seen is that the reimbursement rate is very, very low for the therapist. Mm, And I know that's really never anything that we want to take into consideration when we're picking a provider, but this is one of those pieces of the human condition, right? Therapists are human too. And one of the things that we I've really been seeing in the therapeutic community is a lot of therapists that are receiving very low wages and very low reimbursement rates from these big companies and just trying to manage their own life, their own well-being, they start to build resentments towards their company that they're working for. And then in turn, those resentments can start to turn into resentments of the work that they're doing. So 
that's always something to take into consideration. And to really kind of understand this picture a little bit more, we are talking about licensed therapists. So these are people who have a bachelor's degree, they have a master's or a doctorate. They've done thousands of hours of kind of licensure work. They've passed multiple license tests. And a lot of times their comp- their compensation is about $20 an hour. Hmm. And so that's vastly lower than we're going to even see in kind of our community mental health agencies. So that is one of those big drawbacks is that most of the, the money that is paid into these subscriptions, these packages, the fee for services that the clients are paying out, it doesn't actually go to the therapist. It goes to this big company to run itself, right? These big companies have a lot of moving parts. They have to make sure that those moving parts keep going. But what that means is the vast majority of it is not going to the therapist. And a lot of countertransference can really start budding because of that. So it feels like most businesses, you know, it feels like just, it's like, it gets into that sense. It's about making money. And then the service provider, sometimes the one that's actually performing the service gets the, uh, the short end of the stick exactly. in, in a weird way. You know, is there a way to be more entrepreneurial with it where you can have a, a secure platform that you're not working for, let's say a major corporation and providing them so much money? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So, um, and I think this is where that the COVID-19 pandemic really kind of opened those doors is because a lot of therapists said, you know, it's going to be too hard to offer telehealth. We have to get into all of the platforms and the security reasons and all of the, the HIPAA compliance and meeting all of these privacy standards. And it's just too much. My only option is to go with one of these big companies or just not to offer it. But when a lot of therapists were kind of forced into it to say, they realize that it's actually very simple. And there's a lot of really fantastic platforms out there that are free for mental health professionals to provide these very, very secure services to their clients. And it's actually very simple to get it set up. It's almost like setting up an email account and you create your own secure office online. And so I think as a lot of therapists were realizing this, most therapists have really embraced it and said, you know what, even if I don't do this 100% online, I'll always now have an aspect of telehealth in my practice. And that's really fantastic because most clients now, when you're looking for services, you can call a private practice and say, I'd really like to do this via telehealth. Can we do that? Most therapists are going to say yes now because they have the experience with it now. They understand how it works and they can offer it. I think that's, you're going to see a kind of a dual combination of things in person, uh, virtual based services. This seems to be going that same way. Mm-hmm, absolutely. What, um, I want to go backwards a little bit here and, and talk about your um, interest in getting into therapy and, and the field. What, what drove you into that? Oh, gosh. I, I would say kind of all my life, I knew I just wanted to help people in some sort of capacity. I come from a long line of teaching professionals. So I kind of had that idea that I was going to be a teacher. And then in my undergrad work, I actually lost my best friend to cancer. And it was a very traumatic experience for me. So I went to my, the mental health kind of group in our college and I explained to them everything that was going on. And I had no experience with death and dying, no experience with grieving before in my life. And So I said, you know, I'm going to go to a professional and I I need help. I'm destroyed by this. And I went and 
they did a, a really quick assessment, probably five minutes, and that was it. And the therapist that I saw said, well, I think you're, you're depressed and you need to see a psychiatrist. And that was it. And I left with this referral to a psychiatrist saying, I, I didn't get to talk about anything. This didn't help me at all. Like this cannot be how we help people through the grieving process. And this is me having no information on mental health, having no idea about it, actually switched my direction, started studying more in mental health, went through the entire undergrad got a major in psychology and sociology, went into grad school, actually left my grad school and went directly into working for a hospice because I still had this idea of this cannot be the way we help people who are grieving. And it turns out that is not the way we help people grieving. And so I've really kind of built on my own personal experiences, my own kind of looking at the field and saying, this can't be right. And really using that as motivation that has created my entire path for my career. And a part of that, so are, are you in marriage and family counseling? Is that part of what you do as therapy or is it? Yes. Main, yeah. Uh -huh. So my, my degree is titled marriage and family therapist. So I am a licensed marriage and family therapist and I specialize in grief and loss, anxiety, and couples. And I have a lot of experience in other areas just through different career choices that I've made. I've worked at um, an autism agency specializing in autism for an extended period of time. But those kind of big three areas, the, the bereavement, the anxiety, and couples, those are kind of my, my main drives. What do you think, see, you know, and overall when you're meeting with people, what's the biggest... Uh, level of difficulty in marriage or significant other relationships that you see with couples? Well, I think that is going to kind of fall under a couple different umbrellas. And again, each relationship is going to be completely unique and different based on the couple, the dynamics of their relationship. But typically what I kind of see come into play, and I know every practice is going to be a little bit different, but I see a lot of infidelity. I see a lot of communication challenges. And I see just a lot of anxieties within the relationships. And so those are, if I had to break it into just a couple big areas, and again, there's thousands of different offshoots that come from that, those are a lot of the pieces that I see and that I work with. What's the anxiety? Let's go a little further into that. Like specifically, what type of anxiety or examples? Yeah. So anxiety is kind of a, a beast all on its own and it can take so many different forms, so many different fashions and whether that's anxiety within the relationship. So it could be anxiety about family planning. It could be anxiety about finances, your child's academic success. So there can be anxieties within the relationship that both partners share and both have an investment in, but then we can also have anxieties within the individuals in the relationship. So it could be somebody who is, you know, more just qualifying as that, that generalized anxiety that then brings this into the relationship. And maybe they have a partner that has no experience with anxiety and they don't understand some of the rationale behind what their partner's doing. That can cause a huge rift in the relationship. 
Or it can be that one person comes in with a certain type of anxiety and their partner has their own level of anxiety. And then we see how those forms of anxiety really play off of each other and interact and build and trigger different forms of those anxieties. And you mentioned also infidelity. Do you find that that is a fairly common issue in a lot of people that, uh, you know, come for marriage and family counseling or is it, it just so individualized? It's hard to tell. You know, it's very individualized. I, I work with a lot of couples that have mixed agendas. So that's where one individual is leaning out of the marriage. One is leaning into the marriage. Oh, so one person okay. saying, I really, really want to save this. And the other person is saying, I think I'm done. And a lot of the times when we have that dynamic going on and it's at that big extreme level, there typically can be some level of infidelity and affair, either ongoing or in the past that somebody has just found out about. And then we have those different dynamics of who wants to save it, who doesn't, and being able to work through those. Do you ever have people and you just think to yourself over, you know, however much time, like these people shouldn't be together? <laughs> I mean, on a clinical sense, that really should not be our judgment. Our goal is to help our clients get to the goals that they have set up. But on a human aspect, have I had some couples yes. that I'm really looking at saying, oh my goodness, what's going on here? I mean, yes. And I think everybody has those experiences. And it's so hard because again, it's not our life. That's not what our job is, is to tell them like, whoa, guys, that's a hot mess. You guys should really break up. Like <laughs> That's not what we do at all. Our goal is to help them establish goals, give them the tools to reach those goals. And even when I have a mixed agenda couple, my job is not to say, wow, this person's really leaning up. I think you should get, or leaning out. I think you should give up. No, no, no. Our, our job is to give them the tools to make the decisions for themselves. Because again, even if we're doing really intensive therapy, we're not in their lives 24 hours a day. We don't understand in that truest sense of what that love means to them, their reasons for staying, their reasons for being together. We see the conflict, the challenge, everything that's presented in our room. So that would be very much a disservice if a therapist came in and said, I think you guys need to break up from the 50 minutes <laughs> I work with you guys a day. Because we really don't get the whole picture and we only get really what our clients tell us. No, it makes a lot of sense. It's just, you know, I think going inside the mind of people who are doing different services like this, you know, you're human. Obviously, I think you're going to have thoughts about what's going on on a human sense. Oh, absolutely. I, um, I wonder what your thoughts are about the current state of marriage and the concept of it in today's world. I, and this is something that I, I've actually recently had a conversation with one of my clients about mm. is that it's, it's much different now. And a lot of it is different just based on those society pieces and kind of where this came into play with one of my recent clients is we were talking about finances and how most couples now are dual income couples by nature, because we kind of have to be. And just by that, it kind of starts to cause marriage to take a little bit of a different view. Whereas a lot of women are not bound to the marriage for survival, right? They have their own source of income. They have their own livelihood. They could make it on their own without the marriage. And same goes for men as well. 
But historically, that was not always the case, right? We don't have a lot of women that were joining the workforce and caring for themselves 100 years ago, right? So by nature, this is really kind of causing a different look at marriage. And when I meet with a lot of those mixed agenda couples, and when I meet with the person that's leaning out, one of the big things that always comes up is, well, I could survive completely on my own without my partner and my partner could survive completely on their own without me. So why are we doing this? Hmm. Wow. Really? Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's pretty deep. I mean, so the concept of like, well, what's the point of marriage then if we could all make it on air? Like almost like it's a financial thing, essentially, versus just being about actual love and relationship and growing and all that. I mean, that's fascinating. That's people will say that. Yeah. And again, this is coming from clients that are in a huge amount of conflict. This is not our honeymoon couple that just got married and they're at the peak of happiness. This is a a couple that is going to be in a lot of pain and they're not feeling that love on that day-to-day basis. And it's really trying to get that person that's leaning out of their marriage to really go back and see, you know, well, why did we enter this? Why did we come together in the first place? There was a reason for that. And what is it? Welcome to the intermission. Maybe you've had some time to take stock of being inside, being with other people, or being by yourself during the quarantine. I wonder how that's made you feel. Have you explored your feelings about being at home, being with others, where you see your future going? I think they're all good questions and things to reflect upon. You know, for us as humans, we've accomplished many great things. And we will continue to do that, but only if we continue to look at ourselves and become better. I hope by listening to these podcast episodes, it's made you a little bit better and contributed in that way. So let's take a deep breath and let's continue to listen and let's get better. You feel like there are people that, you know, you talk to and there's just a lot of secrets that they have between each other and they're just not being honest with each other about what's going on in their lives. It does happen. Yes. <laughs> you know, like it does. I'm going to keep it at that. <laughs> <laughs> and when and a lot of the, the therapy that I do is from a very big attachment style. So it, yeah. it's really processing then how those those secrets affect your partner and how it affects their attachment to you and the attachment to the relationship. And one of the things I tell a lot of couples and a lot of individuals, because I'll work with a lot of individuals as well that are saying, I think I want to leave my partner, but I'm not quite sure. And I want to be sure is that if we have these big secrets and we're trying to process and work through these big secrets anyway, without telling our partner. So maybe they're has been an affair or there's a huge amount of debt that the partner isn't telling their significant other about, but they're trying to work through all the conflict that is stemming from that. So all of the symptoms of the conflict without ever informing their partner of the actual conflict, I really just tell them these are all just false starts. 
we're never truly going to get through any of the work that needs to be done until we have that level of honesty. How do you truly rebuild the attachment and the love to your partner when they don't actually know that you're still having the affair? Right. What's the future of marriage and relationships? And, you know, as we progress as humans, and I'm sure you're aware of obviously a lot of things and statistics related to marriage and divorce rates. Where, do, where is this going? You know, I think in our lifetimes, we are never going to see a big shift in that. I think there's mm-hmm. so much need for it. There's so much emotional connection that we get from our partners and kind of that societal push to couple our our drive on a very biological level to couple to kind of replicate our DNA and keep our genes going. I think there are so many factors involved with it that maybe in a million years we will see a change. But for right now, I think marriages are here to stay. I think they are so beneficial for the well-being of so many people that I really don't see a big shift away from that. What about, do you see, because having this podcast, I get a lot of different people on. Mm -hmm. So I've had different people on who are saying, you know, they're seeing a large increase in like polyamorous relationships. Have you noticed that? Oh yeah, definitely. It's, uh, you know, I I try, my thing is I, you know, I'm not judging people and stuff. I just want to know what's going on. I like to be informed, but have you worked with people in those type of relationships and they've talked to you about it? Oh, absolutely. And when we're kind of going back and talking about how to find a therapist, there are a lot of different kind of directories that help clients with very particular needs find a therapist that's going to work for them. Because imagine being in a polyamorous relationship, needing marriage counseling, and you make connection with this therapist. And maybe you're not super upfront with the fact that you're in a polyamorous relationship from the beginning, but you meet this therapist, you're super excited, it's a good fit. And then you tell them, well, here's an additional component to our relationship. And they judge you. That's going to feel awful. Right. And it may be someone that says, hey, you know, for whatever reasons, X, Y, and Z, I don't work with couples that are not in a traditional monogamous relationship. That's their own preference. They are have that ability as a therapist to make that decision, but that client shouldn't suffer. That client shouldn't feel shame because of the way they choose to live their life and the way that makes them happy. But with that being said, there's actually directories, and I'm I participate in one that is just for polyamorous couples trying to find therapists that are open to working with polyamorous couples. That's pretty interesting. That was very interesting. How do, how does your work affect your personal life and how you conduct yourself in relationships? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I think that my life really pulls a lot from all of the experiences, all of the different kind of jobs I've had, all of the different kind of experiences that I've had through that work. And some really easy examples of that is if I see something where I'm just like, wow, I just took this amazing training on communication. My husband's the first one that gets to experience that with me. And I will practice these things. And I'll be like, hey, I just learned this great communication style. Let's do this. And again, sometimes he's like, oh, great. Okay. It's another intervention. Like, thanks but- a lot. Yeah, (laughs) I get to be the guinea pig again. But a lot of the times it's fantastic. And I'd like to think that 
we have great communication within our relationship because of this, that we get to pull from all of these experiences, all of these different trainings, that there's different pieces that I look at. So if I'm in conflict with my spouse, I'm really quick to say, okay, I'm not actually mad about the dishes not being done tonight. What am I (laughs) mad about? Okay. I think that this is hitting on this piece of attachment for me. And this is how I actively need to communicate it to him. So we have a lot more of that proactive communication, a lot more of those skills that I try and teach my clients. Because again, I practice from the piece of, I am not going to tell my clients to do something that I wouldn't do myself. That's fantastic. It was funny. It's interesting. Like I, my doctorate is a behavioral based doctorate. And so I think it's helped me tremendously in my 16 years of almost being married and having those skills to be able to diffuse and uh, look at situations a different way for that. And it's hard when you don't have that information. Sometimes Absolutely. you're just kind of shooting in the dark, you know, mm-hmm. and people are getting angry and crazy about stuff. You know, it's, I want to know, is there pressure in being, and this is generally in the profession, not not just yourself, but like as a profession, for someone who's like a marriage and family therapist, is there pressure to be in a great marriage or have all these great relationships and being in that profession? I would say not necessarily to have a great marriage because you can be the best marriage therapist and help hundreds of thousands of clients and still not be able to save your own marriage, right? There's that that very known piece of doctors don't treat their family members. Therapists do not treat their own family members. <laughs> when you're simply too close to it, you can't use all of your skills successfully, right? There's mm. a huge niche of therapists that only work with therapists as clients because we need therapy too. And so I wouldn't say it's a, a strong push to have the most successful marriage. I would say it's more of a push and it's actually an ethical obligation for our boards that oversee us to be working in the most kind of ethical and productive way. And a really good example of that is there is a magazine called The Therapist, and most therapists have seen it, read it. But there's a huge section in it that really actually displays any of the wrongdoings of therapists. And it's the like wall of shame almost. And a lot of the times, depending, and again, this is going to be state-based depending on their board. But for my board here in California, the main one that I report to, if I were to get into any legal trouble, say I get um, pulled over and I get a DUI, I actually have to report that to my board. They then can publish that in this magazine and say, you know, this therapist has this disciplinary action going on from this incident, and they really make it public. And part of that is that you would then go through, and I've had the opportunity to read some of the disciplinary actions the California State Board has given to therapists in these situations, is that you go through your whole criminal court process for a DUI, you get to go through all of that, but now you have this whole other component where you basically stand trial within your governing board to say, are you ethical enough to continue practicing? And it's a whole process. And a lot of therapists don't make it out from that because it is such an emotionally draining and 
kind of financially draining process and they can put all sorts of different sanctions depending on what it is. And again, this could be something that is, you know, just a minor incident all the way up to big ones where they can rule immediately that you lose your license. Wow, that's like the scarlet letter or something, man. <laughs> it just really like, is. <laughs> yeah, you know, you did, you're terrible, terrible, terrible. Everybody can read how terrible. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of crazy. I wonder though, what is that though, that someone could provide tremendous advice about marriage and family, but let's say they are just, let's say they're, you know, one of these folks who like, they get divorced four or five, six times. Like they're just serial, like doesn't work out. Like mm-hmm. I find that strange. I don't know. <laughs> I, it is, but I, the way I like to look at it is every now and then you go to a certain type of professional practice and well, you may not have experience with this one, but if I ever go and get my nails done, maybe mm-hmm. once every five years, I go and have to get my nails done for an event and I'm getting my nails done and I look and the person that is doing my nails never has beautiful nails. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? And the logic that I have behind it is that they do these manicures all day long, right? This is what they do 40 plus hours a week. They don't want to then do their own nails when they get off of work. Same thing as, you know, a hairstylist. A lot of the times um, I've worked with a lot of teachers who say, you know what? I have educated 30 plus kids all day long. I can't sit down and do more homework with my kid. I'm going to get them a tutor. I can't do it. Yeah. And so I think it's just that being overly saturated, giving everything you have to your job and not leaving enough left over for your own personal life. It's so, it's so strange on some level though. It's kind of like, I've, I've listened to some podcasts where, you know, they'll have, um, like life extension people on there, scientists and things, you know, talking about all these things on a biological level, and increasing lifespan and healthiness. And then they're like incredibly in incredibly poor condition themselves. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I'm like, that just, that drives me nuts, man. It really does. I'm like, wait, wait a minute. And I feel like, I don't know. I don't want to be the person who's like, like trying to like, Hey, bullseye you, but it feels incongruent to me on some Absolutely. level, you know, it's like, okay, you're pushing for this extension and quality of life, but you, you yourself are eating Cheetos every night and then you're, you know, eating donuts constantly and then doing really weird stuff all the time. It's like, what happened? <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. Like, exactly. Somebody who's in a really bad in relationships, but they're good at helping other people in relationships. There's something just really strange to me about that. I don't know, that's all I could say, really. It's really strange. I think <laughs> you know? it's just that matter of taking your own knowledge and your own advice and using it. Yeah. Why don't people do that though? I mean, there's plenty of people who know a lot, but don't use their own advice besides just being tired, you know, like. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think that's one of those pieces where you have to kind of do that really deep dive and figure out what that secondary gain is from not Mm -hmm. doing that, right? We know self-care is a huge thing. It's a huge thing in all of the helping profession that if you don't take care of yourself, you really cannot take care of other people. But we still see a lot of therapists, a lot of physicians, a lot of, you know, these first responders that don't do any sort of self-care. Yeah. Actually, I just recorded a podcast yesterday um, with a licensed hypnotherapist, and she talked a lot about secondary gain. Um, So I got that from her perspective. I would love to get your perspective on that. 
um, as a therapist about, because I don't know if a lot of people are too familiar with the concept of secondary gain, especially in the, uh, in the sense of like gaining, even when you're losing on the, in that perspective, you know? Absolutely. And kind of what I see a lot and what I've seen a lot over the years, just through my career is that we have to look at what we view as logical for the goals for our clients. So maybe if we say, okay, it's really logical that we help this very, very depressed person be less depressed. That's a very logical yes. goal, <laughs> yeah. right? That's a, yes. a very clear one. But what I have found is that sometimes there are reasons that may encourage that person to continue being depressed. And those are those secondary gains from it. And those can look like a huge plethora of things that can look like, well, if I am less depressed, my significant other may feel I'm strong enough to leave me, that I won't self-harm if I'm not depressed. They can break up with me now. Huge secondary gain to stay depressed if they want to stay with that partner. There's a lot of financial goals that will come into secondary gains. If you have somebody that is receiving SSI, right? Mm-hmm. We can't exceed a certain level of wellness and still receive that SSI. So there's a lot of different ways those secondary gains can come into clients' lives. And it's hard. And I I have conversations all the time with my clients of, do you think this is a secondary gain? Do you think you may benefit by not getting well because you still get to enjoy this piece of it? And if we have someone that's able to self-reflect enough to say, wow, yeah, that that's definitely a secondary gain for me then we have the ability to work through some of those things. But it's a lot harder for people to really open up and see, yes, this is a secondary gain for me because a lot of the times there's a lot of shame associated with those secondary gains. Yeah. Well, it's just when you start thinking the logical thing, be less depressed. It's like, why would you want to be in a place that's a negative state? Like, let's say you're like, it's painful. Like, you you feel terrible. But you would rather continue the pain because of the secondary gain. That rhymed. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. Like <laughs> that. And then to have that, I just like for me, that feels so illogical to me. But, you know, but then other people, it's it may there there's kind of a cost benefit of the whole situation. You know? Absolutely. And I, it kind of blew. I was reading this book, not a huge reader, but I love this book. Uh, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. Uh, FBI uh, interrogator, and he talked about that concept, basically that people are more willing, a lot of times more willing to take a loss than to move forward. And I I was like, why? Like, why would somebody want to continue to even go further backwards, you know, because it's what they know, it's comfortable for Mm -hmm. them to take a loss than to move forward and be positive and do things in your life that uh, that kind of increase your status and your the expectation that people will have of you. I, I used to see that in education all the time. I was teaching. If students, all of a sudden, you gain this level of expertise and you're expected to be able to talk about that in an intelligent way. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that also kind of takes into the fact that the future, the unknown, that's really scary. For a lot of people, we can have a lot of very nice things set up for ourselves, but leaving that relationship that is toxic can still be very scary. So avoiding that fear, that anxiety of the unknown, 
is a huge secondary gain to stay in that toxic relationship. Is that the large part of why people stay in very toxic relationships, this secondary gain, or is it just a variety of factors? I think it's a variety of factors. And I think each relationship, depending on where it's at, is going to have its own piece to it. Because once we enter children into the picture, we see a lot of domestic violence relationships continue for fear of what will happen to the kids if they were to leave. There's There's a huge gamut of different things that can be going on that keep people in relationships that are not necessarily positive for them. How do you take care of yourself when you're working with so many people and different people and some of it, I'm sure, very heavy and weighs on all parties involved? How do you take care of yourself after getting all this, ingesting all this information? So I would have to say that one of the, the greatest things I earned or learned really early on in my career, and this was when I was working in hospice, is to really separate my life from my clients' lives and saying that this is their story. This is not my story. So if I have someone that is going through a very complicated grief process with a lot of trauma wrapped into it and just so much loss, I have to be able to say, this is their grief. And I can be sad with them in the moment and I can be empathetic towards them, but this is not my grief. I don't get to take this home with me. This is theirs. And when I was in my office more, I actually have a routine that involves kind of washing my hands, cleansing myself of the day before I even leave. Because all of those stories, all of those things, they need to stay in my office so that when I come back the next day, I can be whole to treat my next client. And then I do have a huge self-care routine because that is one of the things that I teach all my clients is that you have to do self-care every single day. And you have to make sure that you always have a surplus of positive energy within you because the day is going to slowly drain that away. So I do self-care every single day. Awesome. It sounds like you have a good uh, routine or, you know, approach to uh, help you kind of in many ways deal with a lot of, there's just a lot of heaviness with people. I mean, I've, I've talked to so many people and there's just so many stories out there. I mean, it's unbelievable the amount of trauma and stress that humans go through. Unbelievable. Oh, absolutely. It mm-hmm. feels like a minefield. Like, and I feel for so many people that have come up in really difficult situations. You know, it's it's hard when you don't choose your situation growing up. Oh, absolutely. You know, that that always breaks my heart. You know, I was fortunate to grow up in a very wonderful family. But there's so many people I've talked to, they never had a shot. They did not have a shot at that. And I think that sometimes does weigh on me. And I feel responsibility to help people, especially, you know, when I feel like I had it good, I want to help other people get their stories out and be good to them because I had it good. I feel fortunate and I want to help them, you know, and it's hard to sometimes hear very difficult things. Oh, most definitely. So I think that therapists, especially doing amazing work and helping other humans uh, work through life and, and deal with so many issues that are going on. Cause there's just, a, there's just a lot to living. <laughs> living is a lot. And 
I think it's it's wonderful the work that you're doing with telehealth and family and marriage counseling. Thank you so much for um, being on the front lines of that and helping others. Oh, absolutely. Yes. So um, I'm very grateful for that, Jessica, and grateful for your time. I know it's different being at home doing all this stuff. Absolutely. Having a kids, you know, the homeschooling, the, you know, relationships, I'm sure for therapists everywhere, they're probably hearing a lot about people being at home and yes. that dynamic, right? Most definitely. It's either a lot of stressors or a lot of people realizing that some of those previous stressors are not things that they want to re-enter back into their life, that they're saying, you know what, I kind of like this way of life a little bit better. Yeah. I imagine there's going to be some people who are like, yeah, I don't really like all this. Like, like I'm, this person I'm with, I'm not sure I want to be with them. You know? Exactly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, some people have crafted their lives where they don't spend much time around their family. You know, oh, so most definitely, a lot of people sudden, have. Right. So all of a sudden, you're throwing them into this situation where they're constantly spending time with their family, and they're like assessing whether they're into it or not. You know. Oh, most definitely. And some are saying this is the best ever, and I don't want to be separated from them, and I want to work from home constantly now. A lot of parents really exploring what homeschool is going to look like for the long term, and a lot of people that are saying, "Yeah, this cannot continue. I need out." <laughs> I need Right. There's always both sides to it. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jessica. Again, you're doing awesome work and I'm grateful you came on and to have, a, I think, is a, an enlightening discussion. So, Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. You got it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the Rate and Review section. Thanks, everyone.